This is the Adopted Mom Podcast. Adoption may look different for each family, but we need solidarity from other crazy people who took this leap. And that is what we do here. We encourage, we build up, we share the wins and losses. We lean on each other and we get through this together. Thanks for joining us. Welcome, welcome to season three, episode three of the Adoptive Mom Podcast. I am Alex Fitton, and today I get to introduce you guys to three new and awesome people. All three of them have a story that started out hard and broken and it ends up restored and beautiful. They are stories of family and adoption, and they don't look like domestic, international, foster care, or any other kind. Two of them don't even involve a legal adoption, but they all show the incredible power of love for a kid or an adult who needs it. So before we jump in, I want to remind you guys to rate, review, and share this podcast. I'm serious, y'all. I would appreciate it so incredibly much. And it helps the show reach more people who need to hear it. I also want to remind you guys to go to theadoptivemompodcast.com slash email and sign up for Team AMP. That's my weekly newsletter. It has all kinds of fun stuff, including, of course, the episode of the week. You'll get it in your inbox every Monday morning when the show launches, and it's going to be awesome. I've been working hard on this. You should be a part of it for sure. So to start us off, I want you guys to meet Brandy Shioyama. Her story is probably the most lifetime worthy one I've ever heard. And if that's not a good tee up, then I don't know what is. I'll let her get into all the fun details. So let's get to it. All right, guys, I'm here with Brandy Shioyama. And yeah, I mean, I just said your name, but I think there are some other details maybe you could fill us in on. Who are you and who, what do you do and all that fun stuff? Um, well, my name's Brandy, like you said, and, and uh, I am married to Christopher and we have, I have three kids my oldest is 11. Um, and her name is Jordan. And then I have a nine year old son, Hayden. And then Chris and I have, um, a two and a half year old daughter named Marley. Um, and I'm a social worker. I've been a social worker for 15 years. Um, I've done lots of different things in social work. Currently I work for the call. Um, so Yeah. That's me in a nutshell. And so you're on the Adoptive Mom podcast and you're involved with an adoption organization, but you are not an adoptive mom. And correct. There's a reason for that. And it's a really cool story. And you're obviously on an episode talking about <laughs> unconventional adoptions. And so uh, we can just, you know, spoiler alert, you were adopted officially at how old? Um, I was 32 when I was legally adopted. Yeah. Which is like adorable. I just think that's a yeah. cool story. So, I mean, <laughs> let's hear the backstory. How did it come to be? What what happened that caused you to be adopted as a full grown with kids adult? Yeah. Um, so, so my story starts probably you know in childhood. I grew up in a sort of unstable home environment. My mother, um, my biological mother, was is um, an addict an alcoholic, um, made a lot of really poor life choices. Um, and so my childhood was very turbulent. Um, I grew up that way for years. Um, and I was probably about, um, nine years old. Whenever I came to know Christ, I was saved, you know, when I was nine, I rode the bus church bus to, you know, whatever church came through the neighborhood. Um, and I was at a vacation Bible school and gave my life to Christ. Um, and it, that's really the first, the earliest sort of memories that I have about my mom's lifestyle. Um, and I really, at that point, I think started to understand that, um, 
the choices she was making were very unhealthy and very unsafe. And anyway, um, it was around that time that I started to really seek out other adults uh, in my life to sort of mentor me and um, just other adults that I could look to to give me advice or, you know, that I could kind of model myself after. Um, And so that came in the form of teachers or Sunday school teachers or pretty much anybody um, who would kind of let me (laughs) attach to them. I attached to, I had a lot of a lot of teachers who kind of took me in, took me under their wing. Um, and I was, gosh, um, I was in the ninth grade when I moved in with a teacher. Um, and I lived with her and her husband for, I guess, about a year, year and a half. Um, and so that was sort of an informal foster care situation. I wasn't in state custody, um, but I wasn't living with my biological mom, these, these other people were taking care of me. Um, and that was really my first sort of, um, the first time I really got to observe, and I'm going to put this in quotes, but like a normal family, um, which I know is, I don't like that word, but, um, I sort of had in my mind kind of worked up, you know, what normal was and what that looks like. And my life was the opposite of that. And so, that was really the first time I got to kind of observe like a man and a wife and my biological mom was a lesbian and there was a lot of people kind of in and out of our life and I didn't really get to observe like husband and wife and what that looked like and just like healthy behavior, uh, healthy parenting, healthy, you know, interpersonal behaviors. And so I was about 14 at that time. And so, um, that was a really, um, great wonderful experience. They're wonderful, are wonderful people. They're still in my life. Um, but that situation was never, was never meant to be forever. Um, I, I don't, I believe that, um, attachment is sort of a two way street. Um, and I loved them and they loved me and cared for me, but there was something kind of missing in terms of that, um, mother, daughter, father, daughter, sort of attachment. And so that really, that was never really there for us. Um, so I moved on from their home, um, and went to a residential school in hot springs called Arkansas school for math and science. Um, and that was really just another sort of avenue, uh, for me to kind of not have to go back to my biological mom's house. Um, I was there for a while. It wasn't working out. Um, so I came back home, um, but over those over those past few years, I had kind of gotten to know a family in my church who were foster parents. They were foster parents through the state of Arkansas um, and had foster children in and out of their home. And they went to my church and um, they taught foster parenting classes. They had several kind of toddlers around two, three and four in their home. They had adopted a little boy um, through foster care. And so I kind of had gotten to know them pretty well. I was babysitting for them and I was just spending a lot of time with them and um, we had really, um, built a really good relationship and I, I really liked them and I think they liked me. And, um, so I came back from the, the, the high school and things at home weren't, weren't good. I was 16 then. Um, and I, uh, ran away from home. Um, I was, I was trying to be emancipated. I was looking for all sorts of ways that I could get out of my mother's home because it just was not, it was not a good situation for me. Um, it wasn't somewhere I wanted to be. It wasn't somewhere I needed to be. Um, anyway, at that time, 
this family that I had become involved with um, had my mother serve with guardianship papers. Um, and my mom begrudgingly signed them um, and let me go and live with them. Um, and so I was 16 at that time. And they were my legal guardians. And I lived with them for the next two years um, as their ward, basically. But they were my parents in every sense of the word. I called them mom and dad very early on. Um, my attachment to them was pretty immediate. Um, and at the time, as a 16-year-old girl, I, I felt an attachment from them. Um, but in hindsight, I realized that may not have happened as quickly for them as it did for me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but it was, it was just a really good relationship from the very beginning. Um, I was a 16 year old girl, so I know I wasn't, um, wasn't all, you know, rainbows and butterflies. Um, but <laughs> they left me anyway. And, uh, when I turned 18, we had, we kind of talked about adoption. Um, you know, they had adopted previously through foster care and they were no longer foster parents at this time. But, um, so we, we kicked it back and forth, and honestly, my memory isn't super great about that, but I do know we talked about it, and we just determined it was expensive, we didn't really need the title, we were family, and so um, on my 18th birthday, I went to the courthouse, and I had my name, my last name, legally changed to their last name, um, and that was really enough for us, um, and so I was 18 when that happened, and I lived the next however many years, I'm really bad at math, Um <laughs> you know, their daughter, they were, they're my parents. Then I was their daughter. We did Sunday, you know, Sunday lunch every, every week when I got married, you know, they gave me away when I had kids, they were nanny and granddad to my children. I mean, in every way they were my parents. Um, and I, I never really questioned, uh, the legality. I mean, I knew it wasn't legal, but it, it never really bothered me that it wasn't legal. Most people in my life just assumed that they had legally adopted me due to our relationship. Um, but when I was 32, I had, I had divorced and gone through some things. Um, and my dad's dad died and, uh, his family's not from here. They live in Texarkana and they don't see me a whole lot and they don't see me with my parents a whole lot. And so I'm not sure that they really fully understood, uh, the depth of, of my relationship with my parents. And when my dad's dad passed away at the funeral, they were reading the eulogy and they listed me as a um, foster grandchild and did not bother me in the slightest. I didn't take offense to that at all. Um, but after a few weeks after the funeral, my dad and my mom pulled me aside on a Sunday before we had Sunday lunch and said that, um, that, it, that my dad told me it bothered him. It bothered him that, um, that they referred to me that way and that he felt like, they should adopt me, um, so that everybody else would be forced to recognize, you know, the relationship that we have. And so I was 32, um, at the time I had two kids and was divorced and, um, I was like, sure, that sounds great. And so, um, you know, when you're an adult and you get adopted, you have to give consent for that. So I had to consent to my adoption and I did, and we just, it was not a big, you know, we didn't go to court, really. We just went to an attorney's office and signed the paperwork, and it was filed, and and that was that. And I got a new birth certificate as a 32-year-old um, <laughs> with a name on it that, you know, is not really my name, so it's cool. Um, but it, it, it um, for me, I mean, I felt very secure in my relationship with my parents. I mean, very secure. 
Um, but I did not realize how much more secure I was going to feel having that legal piece of paper. Um, my parents are getting older. Um, my mom just turned 70, I think. I hope that's right. Oh, I didn't age her more. Um, and, uh, you know, my dad's close to that too. And so I had started to worry, you know, my, my, my parents have other children. Um, my dad has two kids from a previous marriage and my, my parents together have a son that they adopted. And I, I had begun to worry that as they aged and needed end of life care that I may or may not be able to help, uh, in that situation because I wasn't a legal, a legal relative. And so, um, having that just really brought me a lot of peace and a lot of comfort knowing that, you know, I can be involved, you know, in their life, uh, all the way, all the way to the end. Um, it does, it didn't really change anything for us at all. Um, like I said, we just went into our attorney's office and signed a piece of paper and we walked out and life, life went on the way it has always been. Um, but, um, but now, you know, now legally I'm their daughter and they're my parents. And so, a little bit of a different situation. Uh, and when I announced it on Facebook, it was funny because I, I posted it on Facebook and had all these comments that people were like, what? We thought you were already adopted. And, um, yeah, I mean, I was, it just wasn't legal. And so it was, it was, it was really nice. Um, and brought me a lot more, uh, security than I even knew I needed. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of my story. And, a nutshell, if you can call that a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, oh, I think you, you know, I've heard like the full long story before, and I think you nutshelled it pretty well. But um, I did so some follow up stuff. So I want to know, you know, in so many kids in your situation would have completely turned against adults, they would have had such a lack of trust for them. And instead, you sought them out. Why do you think that is? Well, um, I don't know. I People, you know, I train foster parents and, and I meet a lot of different people in, in my field of social work. And a lot of kids, I've worked with children and families pretty much for the entirety of my career. And I don't really know um, why God gives some of us higher levels of resilience than others um, and why he gives some of us, you know, uh, a wider bandwidth, uh, you know, to handle things than others. Uh, I have a feeling it had to do with the fact that I met him when I was nine. Um, and I don't know something about knowing Jesus when I was nine years old. Um, I don't know. It just made me, um, very aware of what was happening in my life and how I did not want my life to look that way. Everything around me was very chaotic. You know, I had been woken up in the middle of the night by police officers because my mom had been arrested. Um, she had been to prison a couple of times. Um, when I looked around at my peers, they, things were not chaotic in their lives. Um, and so I don't know. I just, I think I looked around and went, okay, that's what I want. I want safety. I want stability. I want, uh, I didn't want the crazy. I didn't want the unstableness. And so something, I don't really know the answer to that other than wanting that stability. Um, and I think I was, um, you know, we talk, I'm sure, you know, about attachment and, and things like that. I was pretty ambivalently attached. Um, and so I was desperate for some sort of mothering, uh, nurture, nurturer in my life. Cause I didn't have that. My mom was not that, um, she was a lot of things and she did a lot of things for herself for the benefit of herself. And so she didn't nurture me or love on me or, um, 
and I think, I think I was just somebody who needed that. And so I sought that out in women, especially, um, my female teachers, you know, people that I somehow recognized some sort of loving nurturer in them, I would flock to them and say, love me, love me. <laughs> um, basically is what was happening. And so, you know, as I got older and I'm more mature and more secure, um, person that kind of led up some, but, um, it wasn't until I was a grown up um, and began to teach foster parents and learn more about attachment that I realized, hey, you know, I was probably, you know, very <laughs> awkwardly attached to people. Um, and my mom, especially, I just, I mean, I started calling her mom right out the gate and I would love all of it, touch all over her and hold her hand. And I just, I just was starving, I think, for that type of uh, love and attention. And I think that that is why I sought out those types of adults rather than um, turn away. But how cool that she didn't turn away from that, that she kind of embraced that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And loved you through it. I think that's a really neat, um, I don't know, testimony to your parents, but so let's talk about some of those reactions. So I, I want to know, first of all, how did your bio family react when they found out that I was adopted? Yeah. Uh, well, they didn't find out right away. I don't have contact with them, um, on purpose. So I, a few, well, it's been close to nine years now. I cut off contact with my bio mom, um, just for my own mental health and my, the mental health of my children. Um, but she did contact me, um, about a year or so after I was adopted to have me sign some legal paperwork for my biological dad. And I had to inform her then that I was no longer a legal relative of his. Um, and it, it didn't go over well. <laughs> it went over about as well as, you know, I expected it to, um, She's always sort of um, thought I was a very selfish person for leaving, you know, detaching myself from her. And she always thought or always has thought that I um, consider myself better than her. And um, I did try for a number of years to maintain contact with her out of, um, you know, the biblical mandate to honor your father and your mother. And I tried really hard to do that for a number of years. And it just became very apparent that for my own mental health, I wasn't going to be able to keep her in my life uh, while she was as unhealthy as she is. And so, yeah, so it didn't go great. Um, and it, you know, that's okay with me. Uh, I knew, I knew that that was the reaction I would get when and if she did find out. Um, and, you know, I was willing, I was willing to encounter, encounter her in that way um, to have the legal relationship with my parents. So it, it's, it's unfortunate, but it was, um, something I was willing to do. Yeah. I mean, with, with good reason, I think so. And, and part of the reason that you, um, you know, at the time you didn't have kids whenever you first sort of, um, placed yourself in, in this family's, uh, viewpoint, I guess. Cause I mean, I think that that, you, you know, you were, you babysat for them. Like you definitely attached yourself to their family on purpose. And that was a good thing. And you didn't have kids at the time, but and I assume that this decision has had so much of an impact on your kids now. So how did your kids react when, when you actually were legally adopted? Did they understand or? I don't even know that I had a conversation with them about it, honestly. Um, I mean, my parents have always been men and granddad to them. They were at the birth, at their births. They come to all their, you know, school functions and sporting events and, you know, um, I don't, I mean, it, it does come up occasionally, just, you know, at least kids are inquisitive about different things. And I've, 
I've said, you know, I was adopted by Nana and Granddad and, you know, a different woman, you know, carried me in her belly. You know, I've given all those sort of age appropriate explanations. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think, though, that they actually they don't they don't remember my biological mom. I mean, they were around her when they were very, very young, um, but they don't really remember her. And so they don't really have any other reference other than, you know, Nana and Granddad are my parents. And so. But my brother is adopted also, and he's 22-ish. I can't ever remember, but he's biracial. And so he looks different, you know, than the rest of us. And so um, that is sometimes, it's sometimes easier to use him as an example to help them understand it because he doesn't look like us. He doesn't have the same color of skin. And so sometimes I can talk about, well, you know, just like Uncle Kyle was adopted, I'm adopted in the same way. And um but there, there wasn't any grand, you know, like, oh, today mom was adopted. There wasn't any, you know, I don't even know that I had a conversation with them about it, quite honestly. Um, but, I mean, they don't, they just don't know any different. That's, yeah. that's, that's always been their life. So, they've that's always cool. had them in there for their grandparents. So, so yeah, they don't, they don't quite know the, the gravity. Um, you know, I tell people who are fostering or who are adopting or who are getting involved, you know, with, um, with kids from trauma or, you know, less, you know, ideal circumstances that, um, yeah, you're doing something great for that kid, but you're actually doing something even bigger than that. Because what, you know, what my parents did changed the course of my life, but it also changed the course of my kids' lives. Um, and then, and then hopefully the change the course of their lives. Um, you know, statistically speaking, I shouldn't be, I shouldn't have a college degree. I shouldn't own a house. I shouldn't, you know, I should be a drug addict or, you know, I should be a lot of things, statistically speaking. And I should be in poverty and raising my children much the same way that I was raised. And those, none of those things are true, although I do like food a lot. That's, that's my addiction, I guess. Uh, but nothing illegal. And so, you know, my, my kids don't know any different. They don't know how I grew up. They don't know what that's like. And I'm so thankful for that. But, you know, as they get older, my, my 11-year-old is starting to get to a point developmentally where she can kind of, I can have some of those conversations with her so that she can kind of understand kind of how mom grew up versus how she's growing up. But, um, but I'm just glad, I'm glad that, you know, her biggest concern is I need new shorts, not, you know, I got to pee in a cup for mom to pass a drugstream. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a hard balance of when and how to explain things to them. Um, because I do want them to value, you know, what my parents did for me and what my parents have done for us and for them. Um, but also I want them to enjoy having, you know, an innocent, normal, you know, childhood where they don't have to worry about stuff, you know, like where they're going to get their next meal or if mom's going to get arrested or if they're going to get woke up in the middle of the night by a police officer. So those aren't on their radar and I don't want that on their radar, of course. And so, you know, I've, I've chosen to kind of not have those conversations with them yet. But as they get older, I'm, um, I feel sure, you know, I'll let them in on a little bit more about that. I think it's, uh, that would be such a hard balance to, you know, see, hey, this is what your life could have been like and you should appreciate right. it. But then they have no context for that. And so walking that balance yeah. of wanting them to enjoy not living the life you lived, but also appreciate it is, uh, that would be so hard. So Yeah, um, it is hard. Yeah. So one more reaction. What um, about your husband? What does he think about your story? He um, only knows, you know, what I've told him, which, you know, obviously I've told him everything. But, I mean, he loves my parents. My parents adore him. Um, 
he's, you know, who he, my parents are who he talked to, you know, when he was going to ask me to marry him. Um, so, you know, again, it's all he knows too. So that's, it's just, it, it's been my life now for so long. I mean, I was 16 and so I'm 36 now. So, um, it's been my, they've been my parents for, you know, more than half my life. And so it, it's really all most people know. Um, and when you first, you know, when people first get to know me and I talk about my parents and, and things like that, nobody, nobody would ever, <laughs> ever dream, um, you know, uh, that I grew up the way I grew up. People really are, are surprised by that information when I share it. And a lot of people are like, how are you so normal? And how, and, you know, I don't know that I'm normal, but, um, I am well adjusted apparently. Uh, and, and I really, I give my parents a lot of credit. I don't, my, my mom likes to tell people that I was half raised when she got me. And, um, I don't think she likes to take a lot of credit for my successes. And, you know, I think that's fine, but, um, but I, I do give my parents a lot of credit because I don't, I don't know. And I don't want to know what, you know, how much harder it would have been for me to accomplish the things I've accomplished or if I would have given up and gone, gone down the easier road, which was, you know, the life I knew, um, which was a life of, you know, addiction and, and things. Um, so I give my parents a lot of credit because they showed me, um, they showed me a better way. They showed me what it looked like and they showed me how to do it. And they supported me while I took the steps, you know, to go to college and to, you know, be a functioning member of society. And so, and that's what parents do. I just didn't know that at the time. <laughs> so, um, You're like, who that's knew? what parents, yeah, who knew? Um, and so I, I give a lot of credit to my parents. I don't know that they always take all the credit that they should, but, um, but they, they did, they changed the course of my life. Um, because statistically, I don't know where I would be at 36. I mean, I do have a biological sister and, um, she's not fared as well as me. She's, she lives a very similar life. Um, that my biological mom, uh, has lived. And so, and again, that's one of those things I don't necessarily understand, um, why God gives some of us, you know, a desire to get out of that and, and a resilience to that. And some of us not so much. So, um, I do believe we all make choices and, uh, I, I chose to try to do something different and, but I had a lot of help with that. I think, you know, I, I like to tell people that, you know, my brain is different. My brain is different than, than most people's because I experienced trauma and I grew up in poverty and both of those things physically change the makeup of a child's brain. And so for me, uh, things that come natural to people actually are the opposite for me. I have to work really hard to make things, make myself do things that come naturally to other people. Um, and I just have to be very self-aware and I have to work really hard at that because the easy thing is usually the unhealthy thing. Um, because that's what comes naturally to me. Um, just, and that's just brain chemistry and upbringing and, um, you know, sounds like a bunch of psycho babble, but it's, it's legit. Um, no, on this podcast, so, that sounds absolutely normal. Cause we talk about, yeah. <laughs> we talk about yeah. that stuff a lot and that's something that I didn't understand for so long. And I think that you have such a unique understanding of this and, you know, we talk, you've, you've talked about how healthy you are now and how that's kind of an anomaly based on statistics. And I think that something that amazes me is that for most of these kids, or, I mean, you're not a kid anymore, but for most of most people that have come from situations like yours, you know, we talk about trigger warnings a lot and that sounds like a super millennial term, but 
it's true. I mean, a lot of times you're like, don't put them in a situation. You know, I think about that with my teen. I'm like, let's steer clear of any situation that's going to be a trigger for him or going to make him regress from all the progress he's done. And you're like, nah, I'm going to get into adoption work (laughs) and and foster care. So what what happened with that? You're like, let's just have it all firing at me. Let's see how this goes. Well, you know, I... First of all, I think it's a cruel thing that our society does when we make 18-year-olds decide what they're going to do for the rest of their lives. Um, but at 18, you know, I thought, I'm going to be a social – well, first I was going to be a computer engineer, and that lasted five minutes. But then I thought, I'm going to be a social worker because uh, that sounds fun. And and it, I do love being a social worker. But, um, you know, most people get into helping professions because of something in their background. That's just – in general, that's a, that's a, that's a fact. Um, and so I, at 18, being very naive and, and still very young, thought, well, you know, I can help other people because I, you know, grew up this way and, you know, I, I have skills and, and I do and did. And um, it, it, I feel like um, the only real detriment that my background brings to my work is that people, um, people want to see more outcomes like mine. And they're, um, they're sometimes fewer and far, far between than we'd like. And so sometimes people look at me and they're like, where are all the other use? Where are all the other success stories, basically? Um, and they're usually asking me um, when they have a teenager <laughs> or a young adult. And I have to, I have to really remind them that we gotta, you got to give them more time. I'm 36. Right. Yes. Where are they? Well, you know, check, check back and <laughs> check back when they're in their thirties. Um, it just takes a long time for those folks to get over some of that trauma and, and not ever really get over it, but process it and kind of get on the other side of it. And, and I obviously, you know, my, my, my childhood was not as traumatic as some of these kids, um, more traumatic than some of them in some ways, but, um, you know, there's no cookie cutter, there's no recipe, there's no like, you know, you're going to experience this, this, and this, you know, we're all different, God made us all different, and we're all going to experience things differently, but that's probably the only detriment, um, is that I can sometimes be labeled sort of like a poster child, (laughs) and people kind of are like, well, you did it, other people can do it, and, um, we're just, I just have to remind people that we're all, we're all very different, and you need to give a lot of grace and a lot of time. Self-awareness is, is, is really important. And I, I think social work really taught me how to do that. Um, you know, when I was in college majoring in social work, we had to do a lot of exercises and papers and a lot of digging deep into why we want to do this work. And can we do this work without allowing our personal, you know, biases to influence us? And, um, I did a lot of work in my early twenties to kind of get to the root of some of the things, you know, that I was feeling and struggling with. Um, and I still, work on that those things but um you know I'm not I'm not perfect but um that I I think that my background is helpful to what I do because it gives me um a unique appreciation for what for people like you people who get involved you know in the lives of children um from trauma or from you know hard places because I can say with certainty that it matters what you're doing matters um, and I'm an example of that. And it had my parents not been, you know, brave enough or, you know, crazy enough, whatever, however you want to look at it, um, to step into, you know, a 16 year old girl's life, which I mean, I, I feel like at, at the time that sounded like 
cool. But now I'm like, they were crazy. I mean, <laughs> who moves a 16-year-old girl into your house? I mean, they were crazy. Um, but had they not done that, I don't know. You know, I don't know. I don't want to know. I don't want to kind of go down that path and wonder where I'd be today. Um, because it would have been incredibly difficult um, for me to accomplish the things I've accomplished without having their support and, um, you know, just having a family. It's you, you, you can easily take for granted the notoriety that comes from having a family when you have a family. Um, and when you don't have a family, you understand how, how precious that is. And, and the notoriety, I mean, there is a notoriety in society, um, you know, that comes with having a family, having a mom and having a dad. And so, um, I just urge you that if you have that, not to take that for granted because it is precious and not everybody, not everybody is fortunate enough to have that. So was I right or was I right? That was a pretty awesome story. And next up, we have Gerardo Yenez, another big part of my real life. Gerardo is my husband's best friend and an awesome helper for our family. Our kids even call him Uncle Rardo. It's pretty cute. Gerardo was born in Mexico, but he grew up in Texas and he had a pretty traumatic childhood. I love how his story of redemption points us to our communities and Jesus to fulfill us and make us whole. So... I hope that that teaser was awesome because we're about to jump in. All right, Gerardo, how's it going? Going great, Alex. Thanks for having me on your awesome podcast. I feel like that was good. We did we did really well right there. That was that was good, polite banter. <laughs> oh my gosh! So as I said in my introduction, Gerardo is actually my husband's best friend slash boyfriend. Um, they have a pretty strong bromance going and it drives me nuts, but I still love them both. Guilty. One more than others. <laughs> um, but Gerardo has a really awesome story and I'm really excited to share it with you guys. But first, Gerardo, can you just introduce us to yourself and what you do and, um, you know, all that fun stuff? Sure. Well, my name is Gerardo Yanez, or as Alex likes to refer to me as my actual name, Gerardo Arturo Yanez. Um, so <laughs> I am actually a travel agent here in Northwest Arkansas. I've uh, since actually lovely Alex and beautiful Brian to Mexico recently. Um, I am from the Dallas area most of my life. Um, moved to the U.S. when I was two years old. So actually born in Mexico. Uh, spent most of my life in that area. Have been up here a couple of years now and uh, really enjoyed up here. That's awesome. And so, like you said, you you moved here from Mexico when you were little. So, I mean, you remember 0% of your time in Mexico, correct? I remember very few things. Uh, some are kind of vivid memories, uh, but mostly I don't really have a recollection of that at all. I mean, I've been here basically my whole life in the U.S., and that's where most of my memories are. So, I have to ask, just because I know the story and it's funny, but what's your, like, earliest memory of being here in the states and trying to learn english or being told to learn english well um whenever my dad would leave for work in the mornings he would leave and just tell my sister and i okay while i'm gone you guys need to learn english which we just looked at each other like we have no idea how we do that so we would just watch the television uh set on an english channel and just banter back and forth in gibberish, uh, learning absolutely nothing. So then he would get back from work and be angry that we hadn't made any progress. 
Uh, also, first day of school, my mom sent us off to our elementary school, Bowie Elementary. She didn't speak any English, though, so she sent us on the bus to search for Bobby Elementary. <laughs> and so my sister and I arrive at the bus area where we are going to transfer to our second bus that will take us to our school. And we're walking around speaking zero English, asking, pleading, probably crying because we're all alone looking for this Bobby Elementary school bus. <laughs> and it was it was tough. But we got there and uh, within about a year, we spoke pretty, pretty good English. That's awesome. And so tell us about just your actual nuclear family. So I know that there's like some steps and halves out there somewhere, but who did you grow up with being your family? So it was my father and mother who weren't married until I was actually about 24, but I mean, lived together and were together my whole life. So it was almost like they were married. So it was us two. And then my sister, who's about a year and a half older than me, uh, two two grades in school older. And that was it. I do have two half brothers, but didn't meet them till later. Right. And so I want, and I'm asking this, and I don't want to sound too much like a shrink, but uh, like describe your childhood a little bit. And I, I know that that really shaped your adulthood a lot, and it shaped your perception of family a lot. Yeah. So as a child, I was. Uh, I naturally am very shy, very reserved. Um, Which is very, hilarious if you know him. Yeah, if you know me now, you'd think that was uh, a pile of crap. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's my nature. I'm still that way a little bit at heart. Um, but when I was little, it was definitely like that. I think a big part of that is because I did come into this country as a non-English speaker. I felt out of place. I didn't know my way that first day when I spoke zero English and had no idea where to go. I always felt almost a little bit lost in this country, uh, being different, being uh, Hispanic in a predominantly white area in East Texas. Uh, So it was kind of tough. I have always felt different or lesser than uh, a lot of my life. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with the way that I was raised. I mean, we were super poor. We didn't speak English part of that time. Uh, I knew that other kids saw me differently or at least thought that way. So it really played into my self-esteem. I had pretty slow self-esteem most of my life, but especially when I was younger and just kind of really felt like an outsider. So, And what was your relationship with like, like with your parents? Um, it was... Highs and lows uh, with my dad, especially uh, both my sister and I kind of had a lot of lows that we remember. Um, he he would be really friendly and polite to everyone, uh, including us. Uh, I mean, if you met him in the street, he would say hi. He'd you know strike up a conversation. He's not shy at all. Uh, he would wave to every car that would pass by if he was outside. Uh, but he was also a very kind of authoritative um, disciplinarian growing up. So he was always very harsh with us. A lot of discipline, physical and verbal. Um, So we had kind of a back and forth relationship. There were times when we were pretty close, but for the most part, I remember just kind of um, having some animosity toward him because of kind of some of the things that he, that he said and did Uh, with my mom. It was a lot better. She was the more loving of the two. She also disciplined us, but not to the same extent. Um, 
And I think it was a little bit easier for us to kind of take advantage of her uh, since she wasn't kind of that mean parent uh, that my dad was. So we were a lot closer to my mom growing up. But then as teenagers, I think we started to kind of get that attitude that teenagers do. So we started to kind of, um, I guess, shun her a little bit and grow apart from her. So uh, never been super crazy close to either one, honestly, which sounds weird, especially seeing the structures of my friends and their families. But I was definitely a lot closer to my mom. Yeah, and I'm glad you hit on that because that's what that's that's why I asked those questions because I think that that definitely shaped whether you wanted it to or not. That shaped how you saw the family structure and how you saw um, the roles of those who were pouring into you. So, on that note, though, let's fast forward a little bit. So, you've graduated high school. <laughs> What happens next? Yeah. So, I mean, um, being, I guess, traditionally Mexican parents, um, depending on where you are raised, um, I guess, but where they where they came from, basically, you either didn't graduate high school or you did. And that was it. That was kind of the expectation. So neither one of my parents actually graduated high school. Uh, my dad left home when he was about 16, started working. Uh, my mom, when she was a little bit older, but same thing, straight into work. Uh, they actually met at work. So um, that was kind of the expectation they had is let's get them in school. Let's take care of them until they are, quote, unquote, adults, grownups, meaning after high school. So once I graduated, um, a few months after that, they kind of had a talk with us, my sister and I, that is, about how they were planning on moving back to Mexico, uh, which honestly I thought was definitely, I agreed with that decision at that point. We'd spent a lot more times with our friends than we did at home. We didn't spend that much time at home to begin with. Uh, the more freedom, the older we got, the less time we spent. So I was okay with it. I thought they have their family there. They have their friends there. That's where they belong. And like I said, we just weren't super close. So that really didn't phase me. I was kind of glad for them and happy for them to be going back to where their family and friends are. So, I mean, that would be, it's, it's hard to hear that as someone who did grow up with a close family, because that, that kind of situation would have been devastating for someone like me. And I think that for you, it would be devastating with other people and with other people that you've surrounded yourself with throughout your life since that time. And you said earlier that you are, you know, naturally, more shy, more insecure, whatever you would want to call it. And so you, it was kind of out of character for you to move from the small town you grew up in to the bigger Dallas. And you kind of, I mean, you moved in with a friend, right? But that was kind of a, a whim. Sure. Yeah. So at my core, I am, um, I'm very slow to action. I will not take action unless prompted to do so for the most part. Um, So my friend uh, Matt, he had been in Dallas for a few years at that point. Uh, If it wasn't really for him keeping up with me, texting me, calling me, uh, and then him coming up with the idea for me to move in with him, I probably would have would still be in Sulphur Springs, honestly. Uh, But he decided he wanted a roommate. I decided I wanted to see if there were other places besides Sulphur Springs, Texas. Turns out there are. And I made my way to Dallas and lived there for several years. Um, But yeah, I mean, that really, I think, helped a lot. Uh, I really wasn't in a good place in Sulphur Springs. Uh, My parents were gone. Not that that really phased me a whole lot, honestly. But there really just wasn't a whole lot for me in Sulphur Springs. And I had just kind of been depressed, honestly, and just 
kind of settled into this rut, um, this day in, day out of the same old, same old, and uh, definitely needed to change. And it was a, a great decision to move there. And and obviously, I, I think that that was a big eventually a, eventual proponent for what got you here today. Um, but the topic of this episode is on non-traditional adoptions. And the reason I wanted to have you on the show is because you, you know, you're not close to your family. They're living, they're, you know, healthy, I assume, but they, you haven't seen your mom in however many years. And, and I don't think that's necessarily a reflection on you because you're a very loyal person. And I would even say that you're a very, um, I don't know, family mentality type person, but it doesn't look the way that a traditional, you know, nuclear family would look like. So tell us a little bit about why that is. Yeah, so I think a big, big reason for that is um, growing up, uh, like I said, it was a very different dynamic than a lot of my friends. Um, I really got a lot of my, um, I guess, support. And um, so at home, I, I really, my parents, I don't remember a single time telling me that they were really proud of me, which at the time I didn't think about, but looking back, I mean, it's, it's pretty, it hurts a lot to, to remember that. So a lot of that had to come from other people, from teachers, from coaches, etc. So not having that at home, uh, I really wasn't aware of it, I guess, until I started getting that from other people. So I was really just super blessed to have a lot of really close friends of mine whose families really took me in, uh, especially once my parents ended up moving out of the country. Uh, of course, you know, everyone wants to be around family during the ho- holidays, Christmas time, Thanksgiving, etc. I really didn't have anything like that. So I had a lot of, uh, main, namely, probably three or four different families who would have me over for Christmas. Uh, hey, Gerardo, are you going to be in town this weekend? You need somewhere to stay? We have an extra room. Um, hey, why don't you come on over for Thanksgiving? We're having a family get together. You should be there. And I mean, just having having them check in on what's going on with me, um, tell me they're excited about things I'm doing, uh, things like that. I just never heard that growing up. So starting to hear that from these people that weren't technically family, I mean, that really changed how I viewed them. And I think it almost changed a little bit how I view my actual family, Um, because I feel like that's something hugely important, especially from parents that every child needs to hear growing up. And maybe it happened and I'm just not remembering it, but there's a lot of things that I do remember and it's not that Whereas these other friends and their parents, they completely, you know, filled me with positivity and just, they were just a joy and just opened their homes, opened their arms. And I mean, really provided when I needed things. And that was just really an amazing thing to, um, to have happen to me, I guess. Yeah. And I think that, that having those people that surround you, during those and and show up during those important times, I know that they think of you as family. And I think honestly, if we're we're talking about kids being adopted and not that you're a kid anymore, but I think that one of the most important things that we're talking about is it shapes the way you see them as family. And I'm thinking about, you know, recently Gerardo became a U.S. citizen and I'm thinking of what three 
or four different quote families that showed up that are that have all been a huge parts of your life and um I don't know I just think that's really cool what did you think about that and some of them drove really far just to be there for you that day yeah for sure um yeah I mean it was just it was amazing to feel that from people from families that weren't like I said, uh, biologically my families, but were willing to, uh, I mean, even not, not just recently, but from high school, even, uh, I mean, I had a pretty big falling out with my dad, uh, late in senior year. And I ended up moving in with one of my friends. Um, and his family was just said, Hey, yeah, as long as you need to stay here, we'll be here. Um, you know, they fed me, they gave me a place to stay. And I, I mean, I was there for a couple of months and, like I said, any, any special occasions that would come up, I would have several families that would just open their homes to me. Um, yeah, I had, um, one of my really close family, uh, friends as families, they drove up from Sulphur Springs. So about five hours, um, to see my citizenship ceremony. And that just means a lot because my dad, he was working, so he wasn't able to get off, but you know, not even my dad could make it. Um, so to have other people, people uh friends families that i'm really close with be there i mean that just shows you kind of i guess how they how they feel about me and i just really appreciate that sort of level of love and uh showing that yeah and i think i mean just to lighten it up a bit because this is a kind of a funny story so i mean i think that to i mean to break it down you definitely have a lot of trauma stories from your childhood and I think you're seeing now how much that shaped you and how, how much you still have to overcome through that. Let's shift gears a little bit to something a little more important because I know that you were raised, I mean, I say this in air quotes, Catholic, right? Like that's your that's your family's background, but it's not like you grew up really like dedicatedly going to mass, right? Yes. I mean, growing up, it was, we, we went pretty regularly for a while i don't remember exactly how old i was 10 maybe 11 uh and then it really just stopped my mom did a pretty good job of having us study the bible uh, but my dad worked during the days my mom she suffered a stroke after she had me so it affected her entire right side she recovered most of her um most of her capacity to use her right hand, her right foot, et cetera. But she was never able to drive after that. So my dad basically was our only mode of transportation. So he worked during the days, wasn't able to take us to church. Um, We did get rides for a while, but then that just kind of stopped. So then there were several years where I just never went to church. And I just kind of thought, you know what? I don't think religion is for me. Some people are religious. I'm just not. And I just was okay with that. But now you are a believer and what role did your assembled family ha- play in that? So yeah, I mean that 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 was huge. Um the first time I got back in church was actually I was at a cross country meet and uh my friends uh who I was pretty close with, uh they just kind of started probing, asking questions and then they invited me to church. Um, they invited me to the dreaded first Baptist church, silver Springs. Uh, I had only (laughs) ever heard terrible things about that church and everyone in it. Uh, hypocrites, uh, stuck up, uh, bad people, you name it. 
So I was a little, little leery, but I went there and none of those things I felt at all. So I felt welcomed. Um, people were super kind and open and, uh, that kind of got me back in there. Uh, another big, big, um, big reason was my friend, David, David's dad is a pastor. He's been big in a church. He actually has a homeless ministry in Dallas, uh, which is pretty awesome. And he was pretty instrumental in kind of keeping me going to church and not just letting it be a social thing, which it is for a lot of high school kids. I believe Uh, they go because their friends go, which is initially why I went. So he was instrumental in kind of keeping me going. And yeah, I mean, all of my friends, the families that, that kind of took me in, they're all believers and pretty strong ones. I would say some of the best examples in that, um, that I know. And so they were always big encouragers, uh, my friends. So their children, they were always, you know, some of my closest friends and just really great examples. And, uh, also just really encouraged me to keep, keep going to church. So, uh, I mean, they were pretty important. I would say where my parents told me to go because it was the thing to do. We did a Bible study every night with my mom because it was what we had to do. Church was something we had to do, not something that we wanted to do or any sort of relationship scenario. Uh, Jesus was just this guy and God was this thing. And it was the, the Bible was just something you, you should have studied. Whereas, you know, my friends kind of opened up this other world and kind of made me see that completely differently. And I think that, I don't know. I, I think that that's such a beautiful testimony to to what this this kind of um, informal adoption can do. And I know that you don't have just one family that has you know taken you in, but you have what like four or five really solid ones, yep. right? And so I think that I think that while you wouldn't necessarily you wouldn't take all of the credit for that, I want to ask you on. If you're if you're an adult or if you're a family, if you're even just someone like you and you see a kid who um, who was where you were, who maybe didn't want to portray it, but had a rough home life, maybe was hanging around a lot more than normal parents would allow or just whatever. What would you what would you encourage those parents to do? Because I think that a lot of people on on the other side, they don't want to intrude. They don't want to assume but what did what did those families do that made all the difference in your life? Um, I, they, I mean, they didn't really probe a whole lot. Uh, they didn't ask me, you know, why I wasn't at home as much uh, or a lot. They really, they didn't do anything except just be super kind to me. Um, they would just open up their home, like I said, anytime. Uh, whether it was for uh, an eight hour video game session with their son or a holiday or anything else, they were just really warm, really inviting, which I think in general, uh, that's just a good thing to be as a person, to be inviting to people, to be warm. Cause you never know what people are going through or you never know what's going on with someone. Uh, but especially for a younger kid, that was, that was just great to, to have that. And especially not having that at home. Um, so I just think being open, being inviting, just being kind overall, uh, is just huge because everyone has stuff going on. Uh, not a single person that just has a perfect life, uh, kids, adults. So just showing that kindness to a stranger even, but especially just to people that, you know, I think is very important and, um, they may not vocalize it right away, but I think everyone will appreciate that. 
Cool. Well, I think that that, all of that is great advice and it's great insight into, um, into a big need because not everyone is available for adoption in in a traditional sense or wants to be adopted or wants to adopt in a traditional sense. But I think that there are a lot more kids like you than we know about then you know there are a lot more people that grow up thinking they can do it on their own or thinking that they have to do it on their own and um there's a there's a motivational speaker and he was a foster kid and he grew up and he was eventually adopted and his name is josh ship and he talks about it how it just takes one good adult in every kid's life to make all the difference and you know you had a lot of good adults which is really cool but i think that that's an important thing to note is that you can make a difference in the lives of these kids that maybe you can't formally adopt, but that you can open your home to in different ways. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You've been a big supporter, even though you have almost nothing to do with adoption aside from, um, I have to give him a shout out. He did live with us for a while and he, uh, dealt with our three kids and he babysits sometimes. Yes. You just have so many kids. (laughs) Oh, we can tell so many more stories, but we'll leave it there. So thanks, guys. Okay, so Gerardo is a mess, but like I said before, he's a pretty big deal around here. And finally, we get to hear from Kanya Carlson. Kanya is a mama of four, and she's married to her high school sweetheart, Ty, or Tyrell, as I like to call him. Kanya had a rough start in life, but has turned it into an amazing story that she uses to fuel her love on all kinds of kids that don't share a shred of DNA with her. So let's get to her interview. All right. Hello, Kanya Carlson. How's it going? It's going good. Thanks for having me. Of course. And so I'm excited to have you on this episode. And I bet that you never would have thought that you would be on an adoption podcast, right? (laughs) Never could I have ever guess. (laughs) So before we get to why you're on an adoption podcast, go ahead and take a second and introduce us to yourself and your family. Sure. My name is Kanye Carlson and I am married to my high school sweetheart, Ty Carlson. We have four kiddos. We have um, Finley, who is nine. We have Asher, who is six. Ellis, who is three, and then we just had a baby boy who is seven months, and his name is Kipton. And we have been married for about, oh gosh, put me on the spot, I think 12 years this past July. <gasps> about, just like a ballpark. I'm like, oh, I think it's 12 years. Um, yeah, but we've been together for about uh, 17 years. Oh, goodness. So, um, I know, right? So first of all, your husband's full name is? Tyrell. Yeah, it is. Yes. <laughs> That's the only name I ever call him. I know. Me too sometimes <laughs> when he's in trouble. <laughs> yeah. So also you guys are a fellow members of the Three Boys One Girl Club. Correct. Yes. There's a surprising yes. amount of those in our circle. Right? I don't I don't know. Maybe it's in the water. Yeah. Oh, there's definitely something in the water. <laughs> um, okay. So yeah, tell us about your story. Um, and I think that this starts like from way, way little, right? Way little. Yeah. Um, so growing up, my parents divorced early on and I don't ever really remember them being together, honestly. So my mom was a single mom early on. And then my dad actually passed away when I was about eight or nine. And so I had a relationship with him and um, then he passed away. And so then my mom was for sure solo, single mom. 
And I'll just say this to start with. When I was little, I remember being loved and never wanting for anything. And so all of that was not necessarily traumatic. And I felt loved. Right. And then I want to fast forward till I was about 15 to 17 years old. Um, that's when things started to get um, a little bit rocky, I would say. Um, right. And so you were, you were I, a daddy's girl, right? Yes. Like that um, love came I, from him. I actually come from a family of, I have two biological brothers who are older than I am by like 10 to 12 years. And so I came on way late in the game and my dad adored me because he always wanted a little girl. And so, um, so yeah, so mostly it was just me and my mom and my, um, my next oldest brother who lived together. Um, and so in that time, a family had moved across the street and they moved across the street when I was three and they had a little girl who was one grade younger than me. And we hung out all the time. So much so that when I would go to her grandparents' house to go swimming, her mom would say, this is my son, this is my daughter, and this is just our other daughter, you know, jokingly, because I was just always with them as a little girl. Um, I would go over and play after school. We would walk home to their house. Back then, lots of kids walked home. And um, I guess you could say we were all three latchkey kids nowadays, which we walked home to an empty house. I hung out there until my mom got home, went home at 530 and then did the whole nighttime routine with my mom. Um, so I just want to kind of start at when things took a turn for the worse, I guess, for my life kind of going into an upheaval. Um, I was probably 16 when it started. And I remember my mom coming in my room and saying that she was getting remarried and moving. And I remember thinking... I don't didn't even know she had a serious relationship. And I'll say that because looking back, there were lots of men in and out of her life. Um, nothing ever real serious. I didn't ever think anything of it. And the funny thing is like, I didn't know that my life wasn't normal um, until I got older and realized hmm, probably shouldn't have been exposed to that. That's probably not okay. Um, but because I just felt loved and like, she was very loving and there, I didn't think anything of it. Cause that was, that was my normal. So she was going to be moving about an hour away and I was going to be entering my senior year. So this happened probably about February to March of my junior year of high school. And when she told me, she gave me the option of living with my brother his wife and my niece who lived about three hours away at the time. And they were, they would move into the house that we lived in if that's what I wanted, or I could move in with the family across the street. Cause she'd already talked to them as well. Since I'd known them for now six, almost, I guess it'd be like 13 years. Um, in my, all my wisdom, I thought, okay, well, my brother's family. So, I don't want to burden this fam this other family. I will say since I had a, a not normal upbringing, um, my brother was handicapped. And so I often had to help him do things around the house. And so I feel like I had to grow up really quick 
and became a caregiver almost um, to him as well. So I say in all my wisdom, like I rationally remember thinking, well, my brother's family, so I don't want to burden the family across the street with a child that they don't want. Family is probably the most logical choice. I don't know many 16 year olds who are making those kinds of decisions. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And so um, because it was the end of a school year, the plan, my mom was getting married in April and my brother wasn't going to move until the summer. So I did in fact move in across the street with that family. And just until my brother and sister-in-law and my niece moved into the house across the street from them, the house I was currently living in. So I moved across the street and a couple of things from about May or about March to May in there, there was a prom that occurred. <laughs> prom that uh, occurred. <laughs> a prom that happened in, in like in April. So when my mom got married in April, I remember the wedding. It was in Eureka Springs. And I took my current, my boyfriend at the time, and my, one of my close friends. And it was, to say the least, super awkward. Because I think as a teenager... And I knew what was going to happen after she got married. I think I felt already felt those feelings of being abandoned and unwanted. And I will get emotional and I'm so sorry. No. (laughs) Um, But I remember feeling like unwanted and like everybody's happy for my mom. And almost treating me like the typical teenage girl, not being happy for your mom, not being part of this, um, So I just kind of stayed to myself and I will say this now. um, My mom also struggles with alcohol and I remember her drinking a lot that night and she got married in a hotel in Eureka and me and my friend and my boyfriend going just downstairs to the lobby and being just so embarrassed by the things that she was saying that were very inappropriate for a mother to be saying. Um, And so it was just little things like that that really made me feel like I had to be the adult in the situation. Um, And so anyway, so she got married in April and I just remember feeling like, what is going on? Everybody doesn't see what I see, doesn't see her, how she behaves and thinks that I'm being, that I'm in the wrong. So I often felt like I had no voice in anything that was going on. Um, so, back to that prom, that's, that's also a key moment that I remember thinking, this is not an okay situation. Um, I had gone dress shopping with Kim, who is the, the mom of the family across the street. Kim and Rick are the family that I lived with. And so, she was there to tie, it was a dress that tied all the way up the back. And so she knew how to put it on, how to tie it, the whole shebang. Now, my mom paid for the dress. You know, she drove an hour to come see me get ready. But as a hurt teenager, she went to the house across the street that I used to live in while I got ready with Kim and Rick. When I talk about parents, that's who I'm referring to. When I talk about, talk about siblings, <laughs> I have a biological brother. And then I have who I, I say my unmom, my undad, my unbrother, and my unsister <laughs> when I'm trying to keep it straight. When I'm not, it's just brother, sister, mom, dad. 
Right. And so um, I did not make the effort to go across the street to my mom. And I remember Kim saying, like, well, do you want to go over there and do pictures with her? And my thought was, not really. I mean, if she doesn't care to come over here and see me, why should I have to go over there now? I'm 16 or 17 at this point. And um, be, being a teenager, I mean, I'll, I'm being a typical teenager as well as having hurt feelings. So I did go over and I did pictures, but she was not happy that Kim stepped into that motherly role for me at that time. And I remember going to prom, having fun, and afterwards we were all going to go to a friend's house and watch a movie and hang out. And on the way to the friend's house, Kim called me and said, hey, I think you should come home. And I was like, okay. So I, my date brings me home. She's like, we need to talk about something. And I, so I'm like, oh, goodness, what's going on? So she sits me down. She said, hey, your mom called after you left. And I wanted to wait till after prom was over. But she says she's coming to get you tomorrow. And I'm like, what? I have like a month of school left in my junior year. And she's coming to get me all because of this. And so I cried my eyes out. I'm sure I don't I don't remember much after that point. <laughs> um I do remember the next day waiting and she never showed up and she wouldn't answer her phone or anything. And I think that's when other people started noticing that maybe I wasn't so off base thinking that my mom was not all with it and all together and maybe did have a problem. So, after that, it was kind of like, okay, is she going to continue to do this? Is this going to be an ongoing thing? I think it, I don't even remember how it ended up getting resolved, to be honest. I'll just say, like, my brother moved down. We moved across the street. We did the summer before my senior year. Um, and school started for my senior year. And I didn't really talk to my mom very much. Because it was kind of, uh, now the relationship was kind of tattered. And it was also that way. My brother and sister-in-law still talked to her and still tried to keep me in contact with her. But I just didn't have much to say. So I would go see her, but I wouldn't talk very much. And so then I'd come off as a bratty teenager. And it was just not good. Mm -hmm. um, parents, if you're listening to this, show up for your kids. Because no matter what you've done to them or the situations you found yourself in, they still want you a part of their life, even when it's not a good situation. And I think that's what's also hard that I wanted to make sure I said was um, when people are adopting children, I think it's hard because they're never going to replace their parents if they knew their parents in any capacity. Right. And because I was way older... You know, I still wanted my mom to want me, to want to be there. So when it came time for the custody, I was terrified. I was going to have to sit in a courtroom with her and tell the judge I wanted to live with my brother and sister-in-law and them to be my guardian. I didn't want to hurt her. So I show up and she does not show up. 
at all. Oh, girl. So later I learned she thought she was doing me a favor because she knew I didn't want to live with her. And that it did, her showing up wasn't going to matter. But I'm telling you, like, it matters. It just matters. Um, even still, like, even still, there are days in my marriage or when I'm struggling with my kids that I still don't have that motherly relationship like most people do. Like, I know for a fact, like, you and your mom are really close. And so if you're struggling with your kids, you could probably call your mom and be like, why are they so bad? <laughs> and she'll be able to tell you, you know what, you can, you're going to survive this. I don't have that. I don't have that mom that I can call every day or have that mother-daughter relationship with. Um, all of that to say, there are people in my life that I see making poor choices and I just want to be like your kid still wants you your kid still wants you to be there for them no matter how selfish of decisions you're making when you get it together they will be there and they will still love you and they forgive so easily but you have to let go of those selfish desires and those selfish ambitions before you can mend any fences with your children. So she didn't show up. And so then my brother and sister-in-law became um, my guardians until I turned 18. The end of the year came and my sister-in-law was kind of done, to be perfectly honest. I think raising a teenager, now that I was going to be graduating, we were moving on to what are you going to do after, after high school? Now, um, I had gone to visit Kim and Rick without them knowing one time about four months before this, just because I wanted to see what they were up to, um, wanted to reconnect, you know, I've, they've been a part of my life for 14, 15 years at this time. And at the, when I visited them, they were living in a two bedroom house and so it had who I call my sister and them. So when it came time to graduate, I was like, well, maybe I can go see Kim and Rick. But their daughter's going to be entering her senior year. If I move in, they're not she's going to share a room with me. Like, what am I thinking? This is I can't ask that of them. But one weekend I had a note that said, hey. My sister-in-law left the note that said, we're going to visit my grandparents. We'll be back on Sunday. So clearly I wasn't invited. Um, so I thought, well, maybe I can plan to go see Kim and Rick and they would never know because they're going to be gone. So I did. And when I went to visit, they had moved and they actually moved into a three bedroom place. And so immediately I thought, okay, well, they have the extra bedroom, so at least I'm not infringing too much on them. But still, how am I going to ask them this when I haven't talked to them for like a year and a half? Like, what? How is this going to go down? So I went and visited, terrified again of what was going to happen. So I shared um, 
everything that had been going on from walking on eggshells and why I hadn't like contacted them, all this stuff. And before I had even finished my story about what I was going to do, they said, well, do you want to move in here? And I think I just started bawling because I felt like it was such an answered prayer. Wow. Because I didn't want to ask and I didn't have to. And for the first time, for the first time in a really long time, somebody wanted me. Oh man. And I guarantee you that when this six-year-old girl came to play at their house with their daughter, they did not think 11 years later they would be taking her in as their own. And so to feel wanted by someone who doesn't have to want you is huge, which is why now... My husband and I have such a heart for kids in general because we know not everyone's coming over to play with my kids is coming from a home with two parents or a Christian family or that bad words are not okay. I mean, that's some struggles we have with some of the friends that come over. We have to set the rules and... They are okay with it always. All the kids that come over, they're okay with these rules. Because I think it gives them a glimpse of normalcy. Of a life that maybe they don't have. And that's what Kim and Rick provided all those years growing up. Was what a two-parent home looked like. I mean, they literally were like this perfect little family. They had a boy and a girl. I mean, like, you know, lived (laughs) on a neighborhood street. Like... It's kind of funny now, um, but that's what I, that's what I was privy to across the street, you know? Um, so from the time I graduated until I got married, they, um, cared for me. They provided for me. My kids call them grandma and grandpa cousins. I think for a long time, some cousins didn't even know I'm not really related, um, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Um, they, the grandparents all consider me a granddaughter. It's really kind of crazy how far of an extent this family has really taken me in as their own. But like I said, like they were introduced to me as their other daughter for so long that I really feel like, okay, so let me back up. Oftentimes growing up, I would feel like God forgot me Mm. because, um, my dad passed away and had he not, this wouldn't be where I was. So why did that happen? And then, um, he gave me a mom who couldn't fill in the gap for both parents. And so I'm like, why? And all the time now looking back, I know he placed a family across the street because the family I grew up with wasn't the family I would forever have. And so I feel like anytime kids come over, 
I always say the more the merry, whether it is caring for them in the capacity of a date night for parents that are friends of mine, whether it's a mom who works and her childcare has fallen through, I tell several of my friends, listen, I used to work and I know how terrible it is to have a sick caregiver and not have backup. So if you need me, you call me and I will, I love kids when they come in my house as they're my own because I don't know who's going to need me in 11 years because that's where my heart is. It's open to the fact that I may have to be that for someone else and I'm okay with that. And I feel like that is kind of what God has groomed me to do Yeah, is to care for, to care for other kids because I don't know what the future holds, but I have no doubt there will be a kid that needs to feel wanted even for a minute. And you, um, you know, you do that in such an amazing capacity. Um, you're the, you're the children's ministry director at a church and you guys also serve as occasional respite parents for foster parents. And, um, I mean, I think you guys are, you guys are doing it, you know? Right. And I think that's important to know is like, there's no facility telling me to care for a kid or there's, you know, it's just in those instances when, there are kids who need to be held and loved on and cared for and need to see loving parents. Mm. Um, we had a kid over just the other day who lives in our neighborhood and he said, your house is way calmer than my house. I wish it was like this at my house. And I just honestly wanted to cry because the irony of the whole situation is I live in the house that Kim and Rick own the house that I always came over to the house that I lived in with my sister for a little bit. And now kids are coming into this home and witnessing a family be semi normal. <laughs> I don't know that we're normal, but <laughs> we're going to, we're going <laughs> to, we're going to roll with it. <laughs> but it was just so sweet of a reminder that these are the same walls that provided normal for me that are letting him see two parents with children, maybe not yelling, maybe not swearing and talking to each other with respect. Thank you for listening to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. I know this stuff is hard and I hope you found encouragement here. Remember, you are enough and you're doing a great job. God wants to be at the center of this journey, and He is big enough to redeem all of our mistakes. Don't forget to check out show notes and other resources at theadoptivemompodcast.com. Thanks again for listening.